0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Hello, it's Manveen here. Today I'm handing the podcast over to the journalist Emily Sargent. This is part two of her special investigation. And if you missed part one last week, do go back and have a listen. She's looking at a fascinating and until now, extremely secretive practice that's still taking place all over Britain conversion therapy.
0: This is Thinking Straight.
2: Last episode on Thinking Straight.
1: We need to call it conversion abuse. It's certainly not a therapy. In the scientific community, the consensus around conversion therapy is it's pointless and psychologically damaging.
3: I'm hoping that we will have a good time as we get further into the issues that relate to unwanted same-sex attraction.
2: Conversion therapy hasn't just survived the pandemic, it has thrived.
3: It is our vision and mission to raise an army of formerly gay, lesbian, bisexual and transgender individuals.
2: But who are these figures and how do they do it?
3: A lot of people don't realise that it's happening all the time over here and it takes place in so many different ways.
2: There was no way to answer those questions without taking a dive into that world myself. You're listening to Thinking Straight, a special investigative series from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Emily Sargent. Today, Going Undercover. Before we start, a major content warning on this one, it includes discussion of trauma and abuse.
1: Hello? Hi. Hello, how are you? I'm good, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Are are you recording this call right now? Yeah, I am. Okay, should I tell the listeners that I'm your friend? (laughs) This is Susie Ruffle. I'm a comedian and a broadcaster and a podcaster, and I'm a very good friend of Emily's.
2: Susie Ruffle is a stand-up comedian, and she also hosts a podcast called Out, interviewing inspiring LGBTQIA plus people. She's also on the telly a lot. I've been close friends with Susie for a while now.
1: I think it must be five or six years ago. Yeah. Because it was when I was living opposite you.
2: Yeah, we lived right around the corner and, yeah. and did cat
1: sitting for each other in a very lesbian way. In a very high, I really don't want to put upon you, but <laughs> could you feed my cat for a week? I'm going on holiday.
2: Like many people in the queer community, I have a chosen family, a support system of loved ones that I've come to see as part of my family unit.
1: I'd consider you part of my chosen family. For sure. No, I definitely would. Not Kaylee, though, don't tell her.
2: Kaylee is my partner, by the way. She introduced us many years ago.
1: She was my gateway drug to you. (laughs) I've got to be honest. I have really mixed feelings about you doing this. I really worry for your own mental health. Putting yourself through this does make me feel a bit uncomfortable in my tummy. When I first decided to go to
2: conversion therapy myself undercover, I knew I needed to call Susie. She's had so many conversations with queer people about this sort of thing. So
1: like any good podcaster, I recorded our call. I mean, you could have just interviewed loads of people that have been through conversion therapy. It's really hard from people's
2: testimonies to understand exactly what plays out in those rooms and how it could affect you because it's all very subtle and insidious and this This cultivating self-loathing in somebody, which takes people decades to recover from. I think we need to hear her voice and I think we need to know how this woman is going to practice and operate
1: and what her methods are going to be. We've had these conversations before and I've said to you when I was 15, 16, all the way up to 21, if there was a switch I could have pressed to make me straight, to make me like all of my friends at that point in my life, I, I would have done it. But that's why I think it's so dangerous. Yeah. I
2: suppose because I feel robust in myself now, I've just thought, whatever she's going to say, I love my identity as a lesbian Mm -hmm. now, as an adult, so it's just going to kind of wash off me. Wash off me it did not. But more on that later.
0: We've been asking people to stay at home during this pandemic
2: you might remember this public health message. For a while, it was everywhere.
0: You must stay at home. The government is once again instructing you to stay at home. Stay at home. Stay at home. Stay at home. It sounds trivial to say stay at home. To stay at home. Stay at home. Stay at home.
2: Staying at home helped with the global pandemic, but for some sections of the queer community, it presented a unique challenge.
3: Once the pandemic hit, I was hearing lots of my friends who were saying, you know, they couldn't afford to live in London anymore. So many of them were kind of going back.
2: This is Dr. Rohit Dasgupta, a senior lecturer in cultural studies at the University of Glasgow. He's also Labour councillor in the London borough of Newham.
3: Many of us moved to London because of our identities, because of wanting to be in open, welcoming space for queer people of colour and queer people generally.
2: Rowitt has been researching the impact of COVID on LGBTQ plus people of colour. For many, the prospect of moving home meant going back to sometimes unwelcoming and even dangerous situations.
3: I was speaking to someone called Rajesh.
2: That's a pseudonym
3: who has had to move back in with his parents in the Midlands. He was someone who moved to London just prior to lockdown, you know, with a new job, expecting to kind of be here for a longer time and then kind of being forced to move back in with parents who are quite religious, who don't necessarily understand his sexuality.
2: When his family
3: initially found out that he was gay,
2: Rajesh was thrown out of his house and
3: he was told... There is no place for you. We've got a community who we need to save face with, and it's something that's against our culture. And he made that move to London for a job that no longer existed when lockdown happened. And he had to reluctantly move back in. And he described his situation to me as absolutely dire because, you know, he was in this place where he was thrown out. You know, in his words, I had to crawl back in again over there for my own survival. And that was the reality that Rajesh was facing.
2: It's just one of many concerning stories that Rohit's heard this year.
3: I was talking to a friend who works with asylum seekers and the example that she gave me was of a trans asylum seeker in Tower Hamlets who was sharing a house with lots of people who absolutely did not understand her sexuality, her gender, and she was constantly being misgendered and, and she actually felt extremely unsafe because one of the things that the lockdown Really, did was take away a lot of our support structures. Mm. And for LGBT people, you know, it's not necessarily the families we are born in, but families of choice that we make. And that was really taken away from a lot of us.
2: What do you think the impacts have been on individuals' mental health where they might be forced to move back in with family who are perhaps more conservative or hold different religious values? What would
3: that do? to a person's mental well-being over a period of time. Pretty terrible. I think, you know, as human beings, we are very conditioned to be very social animals for many are us. It was very difficult to go out because of regulations and legislation to meet any of those uh, support networks that you might have. It had a very detrimental effect. Once you've kind of moved out of that space, that unsafe space, you come out, you, you assert yourself, you assert that part of your identity. And then suddenly having to go back into that kind of violent space, you know, you can't go back into the closet again. Your mental health, being in a Mm. space, um, uh, you know, shut down from your support structures and your friends um, has been absolutely devastating. It breaks the myth of COVID being this great leveller, because it isn't. If anything, it's been very, very disproportionate on people of colour, on working class LGBT people.
2: A big issue coming up in Rohit's work is the increased threat of conversion therapy.
3: A lot of people don't realise that it's happening all the time over here. And it takes place in so many different ways. It's not always medicalized. It can be very religious. It can be very community-driven. And a lot of young people lack the agency because they're young and who are kind of locked into this extremely discriminatory practice. But also other ways in which it's ha- affected them has been, you know, being under constant mental pressure, of not being able to be themselves, being cut off from their larger social lives uh, that they've had to suddenly leave behind once the lockdown was announced.
2: More than ever before, we're living our lives online.
3: Hello, everybody. Welcome to X Out Loud Live. We are back on our live stream
2: X Out Loud is an organisation that celebrates, quote-unquote, those who have found or are finding freedom from unwanted homosexual feelings and gender confusion and behaviours. It's led by previous X Factor contestant and self-proclaimed ex-gay Matthew Grech.
3: I am 30 years old and I am from Malta. I am excited to co-direct X Out Loud Europe.
2: It features a number of fresh young faces from across the world, and many of those testifying are from Britain.
3: My name is Simon Freelove, and I've come from Newport. I have struggled with same-sex attraction for most of my life. My sexuality... These
2: are some of the voices from an X Out Loud video titled The UK Heroes, Leaving LGBT, Challenging Censorship and Discrimination. Before my teenage
1: years. My name is Kieran. I'm from Leicester. I was raised in a Sikh family. Earlier on in my pre-teens, I was experiencing same-sex attraction. Probably towards my early adulthood, the words of the Bible and the words of Jesus resounded so much to me that um, I left the life of homosexuality. Change is possible.
3: My name's Sam, I'm 29 years old and I'm from Devon.
1: I discovered transgenderism when I was 21. I ended up, sort of, God called me back to the church. I went on an amazing journey to get to where I am now. Returning to womanhood has been intense. It has
2: what most of these stories seem to share is a focus on trauma. Young people are told that this is the cause of their being gay or trans.
1: My name is Tia, and I was sexually abused. That's when I started exploring my sexuality and I pursued the same-sex attraction.
3: My
4: sexuality was awakened at a
3: very early age inappropriately. I just felt that there was a disconnect and that was a pattern I was seeing in all my relationships. And as a result, I separated myself from boys and other men and that left a hole in my heart and that had to be filled with something. Now I realise it's more of a spiritual than emotional connection that I need rather than a sexual connection.
1: My parents divorced. My mum fell ill shortly after. I watched my mum die. My dad went and married another woman, and that taught me this lesson that what my mum had was not enough. That was around the time that I discovered transgenderism.
2: If people want to come out of same-sex
3: attraction and want to seek help, they should have the right to do that.
2: I found the way these testimonies use the language of therapy and psychology both fascinating and unnerving. If you listened to the last episode, you'll know that I contacted Mike Davidson, who runs a group called Core Issues Trust and offers to help with unwanted same-sex attraction. He recommended a private counsellor to me. Let's call her Carol. Well, nice to meet you. Yeah, very nice to meet you. She's not directly affiliated with Mike Davidson's group, but he suggests that Carol will be able to help. She's a qualified counsellor, so I'm interested to see what she's like. You'll hear from Carol in just a moment. But first...
3: Hi, I'm John Witherow, editor of The Times. Thanks to you, we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
2: After speaking over email, Carol and I set up a session in the way of all meetings this year and last via Zoom. I suppose watching my friends and what they were experiencing, it didn't feel satisfying or like it was the right thing for me. And I've had periods of feeling attracted to female friends. Mm -hmm. The only facts I changed about my life in speaking to Carol were small details about my parents. I also told her my name was Rachel... Everything I told her about the way I felt emotionally, in terms of being gay, was based very much on feelings I'd experienced at some point. I feel a lot of discomfort and shame around those feelings and and don't know what to do with them really. I painted a picture of a woman grown somewhat distant from her parents, unfulfilled by her relationship history with men and with a strong attraction to women. But who hadn't acted on those feelings yet. In other words, myself, 10 years ago. I tell Carol a bit about myself, and she does the same.
4: So I'll just give you a little bit of background. So I trained in counselling psychology way back when. So that's a psychology degree, then I did an MSc in counselling psychology. That's 20, or 20 years ago now I've counselled ever since quite a lot in the church but obviously about sort of eight years ago I got back into doing private practice so I've been doing it for the last just private practice the last eight years or so and yeah I've done quite a lot of work with quite a lot of training in same-sex attraction stuff
2: The session that unfolded was a bit like a dance. Both of us carefully asking and answering questions, trying to gauge the intentions of the other. I could sense hesitancy and caution from her. For transparency, I want you to know that the clips you'll hear are edited for length and clarity. I spent six hours in total with Carol, and this amounts to a summary of what we discussed. It began like any normal counselling session might,
4: So tell me a bit about your relationship with your mum and dad. Well, it's not,
2: it's not bad. So they, they're not together anymore. They, they split up, I guess, when I was like late teens, but it's okay.
4: I think it's probably just a bit
2: distant. We talked about family a lot in that first meeting.
4: What was your relationship with mum like? It was, it was
2: okay. She, yeah, she, as, as I say, she, she struggled a bit with mental health. I told her there had been periods of my childhood when I'd worried about my mum's anxiety. So
4: she gets very anxious sometimes. So that's quite interesting because there wasn't much fulfilment in that relationship with mum, sounds like. In that yeah. you couldn't really be expressed with her because you felt maybe that would burden her more.
2: She wanted to know about my father too.
4: What was your relationship like with dad? It
2: was it was okay. Well it is okay. He He so he works quite a lot. I changed some details about my parents. But hearing these relationships summarised back to me by Carol in this way from just a few conversations together still touched a nerve and hurt to hear.
4: So you wouldn't trust in that relationship either to come through for you, to be there for you when you needed it? Not, no, not really. No. So there's a kind of resignation, isn't there? I'm hearing, so you resign from mum because she can't be available because of her needs and where she's at, and then dad's not available either. hmm So that's quite lonely, isn't it? So that's quite a lonely journey as a child.
2: Eventually, we turned to some of my sexual and romantic history with men.
4: So you said you had a relationship with a man for a couple of years. Um, can you tell me about that? yeah so we met university,
2: and and it I guess it was he was kind of my best friend as much as that's a cliche, but I really, really cared about him yeah and and I suppose, despite these other feelings I was having, I thought that would be enough. I thought that that would make things work, but I mean I didn't feel attracted to him and so forcing myself to have sex oh. with somebody who ultimately I loved but I loved in a what felt like quite a different way mm-hmm. was quite painful mm-hmm. by the end I mean it was it was I felt like I was betraying myself and him I explained in a roundabout way that this experience with my then boyfriend had compounded my belief that a traditional pathway of marrying a man and having children wasn't open to me.
4: So how long ago
2: was that? That was from the age of 23, I think, we met, or or we got together. And it was for two years.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, twenty-three is quite young, isn't it? Yeah. Terms of knowing yourself and making those choices. I mean, apparently we're not we're not fully developed till we're twenty-five, you know, mentally and physiologically.
2: Slowly and tentatively, we reached a point in that first session where I felt I could ask her directly about her thoughts on conversion therapy. The thing that Mike was saying, and I just wondered if you felt the same way as Mm. him, was I was asking him basically if he thinks that people are capable of change, Mm. if there's going to be a time when I can be in a relationship with a man and Mm. feel happy about that. And I didn't know if you shared that view with him or not.
4: Mm. Mm. I mean, I think certainly biblically, that would be the model. I guess I believe biblically that is a potential. Mm-hmm. If I'm gonna be honest, but equally. I think it's important to be able to be fully expressed in where you're at without judgment and, and with acceptance. I think that's really important to be, for you to be able to say exactly what you feel and think and, and explore that.
2: Biblically, Carol believes there's potential for me to live my life happily in a heterosexual relationship. It's possible and... I take from this, preferable, based on the fact that I can't imagine this choice being offered to a straight person.
4: Are you open to that? So are you open to us exploring that as a possibility? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. I mean, it's obviously, I don't know if you know much about it, but it is quite controversial, you know, the whole... There's the, a the, the term, isn't it, the conversion therapy stuff, which has had, you know, well, I guess could have negative or people feel, some people feel negative about that. But I think I think conversion's kind of the wrong word in a way, you know, in that it's not about converting anybody to anything. It's about you processing and journeying that for What's important to you.
2: The implication I heard here is that once I've processed and journeyed I won't need to be converted because I'll probably have returned to my original heterosexual self. So do you feel that if I can process stuff that happened in my childhood that mm. the natural thing that would follow would be that I could change?
4: I think the exploration of what happened in your childhood you know, what, what is your, what are you thinking about? It's very important. Some of it you could be conscious of and some of it you might not be conscious of. But I, what I would say is, you know, if you're open, I think it, it would be good to explore it as a possibility if you want to, Yeah. you know. Okay. And I would have faith for that, that that could be a possibility. Whereas I guess some people wouldn't.
2: To be honest, this wasn't the kind of session I'd expected. No evangelical, religious ideology, no telling me I was an evil person. In some ways, she was really easy to share with. She asked thoughtful, open questions, acknowledged my feelings of pain. She made sure to point out that however I was feeling about my sexuality was okay. At this point, we'd only danced around the idea of conversion therapy, Carol used more open-ended language like journey or transformation. It seemed to me to amount to the same thing, but I wasn't sure. As the sessions continued, as I delved further into real-life wounds, that initial feeling of safety began to ebb away and things became much more explicit. The
4: premise of what we talked about last week in terms of You saying, you know, do you believe that you can lead a different life, let's say, or work towards that? It's very much based on the Christian principles, really. Mm -hmm.
2: This is part of my second session with Carol, a week later.
4: I don't know if you know much about the whole conversion therapy. Have you heard about the talk about that or the controversy about that? Have you looked into that at all?
2: In reality, I know a lot about conversion therapy, but I told Carol I only had a rough idea. I thought it was something that happened in places like the Bible Belt of America.
4: So I guess it's just a very, very sensitive subject is the the thing. I mean, perhaps, you know, some people have had bad experiences with that and that's not good. I just think it's important to talk about it before we carry on, just so that you know the sort of general where the land lies in a way but i guess my key thing is is that it's in love you know that we explore these things in love without judgment without any idea that it has to be this way or it should be this way or it should be that way you know it, it's i really would want you to know that i'm coming from a very non judgmental unconditional place with you mm. and and happy to explore all of it you know whatever you want to talk around it so there is no judgment there is no agenda or anything that, you know, it's just, I I, I think out of compassion, I feel it's important for people to be able to explore that at whatever they want, whether it's, you know, living a different lifestyle or not, or what. Carol continued to
2: make this point in our early sessions that proceeding with the therapy was up to me, my choice.
4: So the psychology world, I guess, are, are kind of scared that people would go to someone and they would put things upon them, if that makes sense. So that so people would be saying, "Oh, you need to change, and you need to be this, and you need to be that." That I think that's the very extreme fear, which obviously would not be good for anybody.
2: The psychology world does overwhelmingly condemn the practice of conversion therapy. A memorandum of understanding commits to ending the practice in the UK. It's a document signed by 20 health counselling and psychotherapy organisations, including the British Psychological Society, the British Association for Counselling and Psychotherapy, NHS England, NHS Scotland, and even the Association of Christian Counsellors. And it defines the practice as any therapeutic approach that demonstrates an assumption that any sexual orientation or gender identity is inherently preferable to any other and which attempts to bring about a change or suppression of either.
4: But I think the cost of that is that for for quite a lot of people who do feel unhappy with the lifestyle they've, they've chosen, like the gay lifestyle, and, you know, having met people like that who say, I really don't want to do this anymore, it's not making me happy, and have then gone on and got married and had families and stuff
2: hearing the words gay lifestyle felt really jarring. It's a phrase that to me always seems to equate being gay with some sort of fad or trend. It also works from the assumption, I think, that being gay is a choice, which for me it really wasn't.
4: So it's been a bit tricky, really, because the governing bodies want to protect people who come along and, you know, have someone say, oh, well, you should just do this and you should change and stuff like that. But at the same time, for those that do want to explore that as an option, I think that's important that people can. Mm.
2: So at this point, I seem to have three options. Choose the so-called gay lifestyle, continue with Carol's sessions and potentially transform into a heterosexual person. Or do neither and continue living the celibate life I had described to Carol in that first conversation, feeling attracted to women, but too afraid, confused, and ashamed to act on those feelings.
4: But I'm happy to do it with you. I'm happy to explore it with you. Um, all All I'm saying is I just want you to know that it's coming from a place of complete love and acceptance of you, whatever you're choosing or not choosing, or whatever. I just want you to know that. Yeah. I'm happy to explore it, and I do have quite a lot of background and insight into that. But I do feel very strongly that people feel loved, you know, mm-hmm. in it. Because it, yeah. I know it's, 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 a, it's a painful journey.
2: In response to The Times, Carol said... I have never held myself out as a provider of, nor do I offer counselling to any client with the aim to change their sexuality. To the best of my knowledge, there are no UK therapists who have ever described themselves as conversion therapists. The term conversion therapy is an imposed term, is misleading and forces an implied definition of conversion. I took quote-unquote Rachel at her word and sought to serve her in a bid to help her come to terms with her true self. Coming up on Thinking Straight.
4: But I know these are really deep questions, but did you enjoy it sexually? I mean, did you get pleasure from it at all? Were you able to orgasm? Did you actually think, oh, this is actually, you know, because we we all have a sex drive, don't we?
3: You're lying there by yourself,
0: totally emotionally traumatised, shaking from head to toe. No one's coming to see if you're okay.
2: The therapist's idea was that you would work through any issues you'd had and through that you would then reach your true self, which innately was a heterosexual self.
3: His family believed that being gay was some sort of disease that had to be removed, that had to be got rid of.
2: You've been listening to Thinking Straight, a podcast series brought to you by subscribers to The Times and Sunday Times. I'm journalist Emily Sargent. The producer of this series is Leona Hamid. The series is made in collaboration with Story Hunter. The executive producer for Story Hunter is Kirsty Hunter. The executive producer of Stories of Our Times is Poppy Damon. Sound design is by Vulcan Kiseltook. The next episode of Thinking Straight will be in the Stories of Our Times feed next Friday. If you've been affected by any of the issues in today's episode, you can contact Samaritans on 116 123 or Switchboard, the LGBT helpline on 0300 330 0630 open from 10am until 10pm every day if you have a story you think we should be covering an idea for a future episode or thoughts on what you've just heard send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk see you again soon